Okay, I hope, hopefully everybody has a, um, a sheet or two or whatever it might be. Um, we're going to spend a little time uh, with Isaiah and with uh, Martin Luther. Um, Luther, in his uh, application, was not afraid to apply it to his own modern day. And in fact, uh, the way in which he interprets these texts, it's not, it's not quite like it is that modern-day scholars do. Modern-day scholars, I guess, by and large, have a tendency to both look at the text for what it simply meant in its own historical context, and they have a hard time being able to draw that text all the way up to the present day. Uh, to our particular situation. And what you're going to see is that Luther uh, very much draws that text into the present day and into his present day. And so, if you, I guess you might say, kind of through that telescope, we can also perhaps make some good applications for our own day and time. Um, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Savior, we pray that your pathway, the way that you bring your church first to its knees and then always you exalt your church by the way that we are indeed recipients of your grace and mercy. Help us to recognize this theology of the cross, this cross that comes into our lives, which is your way of being able to drive us to that wonderful open tomb where we see the hope of everlasting life. Pray that we may apply your word to our hearts and to our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okie doke. Well, um, this, uh, this is my podium, and um, I specifically designed it to work on a ship. Um, the, um, the problem um, is that the leg broke off on one side, so... Um, if anybody here has a desire to be a fix-it person, um, all it requires, I think, is just a, a little um, leg. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be teaching today in a different way. Um, I'd use a Bible, but I think that's sacrilegious. And Maybe a hymnal, uh, I don't know. We'll see. It's not quite as bad. All right, um, let's, uh, let's go to this text here. I'm going to just kind of do a review over the, of the Bible text. If you would, just turn to Isaiah. Start off with chapter 33. Now, I didn't focus a whole lot on what Luther had to say about chapter 33, it's a very terrifying chapter. Um, God's judgment uh, upon not just the enemies of God's people, but in this text, God's judgment um, upon those in the church who would subvert, who would, in a sense, be the hypocrites of the church. It, it, probably what we might describe as being kind of the Pharisees uh, of the church. But it's an eternal problem. It's, it's true of all ages that the church is always made up of 
both saints and also uh, hypocrites. Now, hip, uh, hypocrites in the Bible was ne- is not a person who um, mer- merely, um, how would we say this? It's, it's not a person who pretend, pretends to have faith but doesn't. It is really a person who distorts God's word and turns God's word. Oh, you're a kind man. Thank you very Look at that. Oh, can we can we give him a hand? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> are those are those children's play blocks? Is that what they are? They're the most most universally. Um, uh, I mean, they they are universal. Um, okay, what was I saying? Um, <laughs> forgot. Um, the hypocrites. A, a, a hypocrite, hypocrites, is a, a person who pretends to be able to be a religious person, but relies upon their so-called good works. It's a pretense of piety, a pretense of holiness. And so the Pharisees are called hypocrites. Um, I say that because sometimes um, all of us as Christians struggle sometimes with, you know, do we believe? I mean, is this a this faith of ours? Is it indeed a, a true faith? And if there are, is the weakness of our faith or the weakness of our souls in this matter, if we define a hypocrite as a person who um, claims to have faith but doesn't, it really kind of puts us in a different category. Uh, what we have to ask ourselves is, do we cling to our own works righteousness? Do we cling to our works as our way of being able to be justified before God. And if, if we say, well, yeah, yeah we're, we're people who have done what God wants us to do and so on, we're the Pharisees of our era, then you might be able to call yourself a hypocrite. But don't call yourself a hypocrite if you're claiming faith in Christ, but you're struggling with whether or not your faith is indeed strong enough to be able to handle or endure maybe some of the trials and tribulations of your life. So, um, yeah, let's, um, chapter 33 is really an indictment. I'm just going to read the first portion here. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. When you have made an end of despising, you will be despised. He's speaking to those hypocrites. Luther, this is the method of our God that he permits our enemies to climb up to the highest level so that they may become altogether presumptuous and then he throws them down. Um, yeah, uh, you know, and, and the question we'll, we will ask ourselves sometimes is, why is it that those who are not righteous, why is it that the unbelieving world, why do they prosper so much? Well, it just seems as though here we are slugging it out day to day, trying to be able to pay our bills, and there is the world out there. Yesterday, I went to... Um, down here to wash my car. I tell you, the cars that I saw going through that car wash, man, I mean, they're the Teslas and all these cars that you're just going, where's all this money? And you drive around in these beautiful houses out here and you go, man, it just seems as though everybody's prospering. I mean, we're, we're prosperous ourselves, but what do you suppose those people are thinking there that don't? 
And they say to themselves, you know, where, God, what are you doing? Well, Luther says, God will take you and he'll raise you up. He'll give you the world. And then he takes it away. Luther said, we don't see it, but we accumulate all this wealth and so on and so forth, and you take pride in it, and all of a sudden you you're think you're really something special in the world, and then the horsemen come riding on down, and they take it all away. Well, don't be surprised when you see the so-called unbelievers or the hypocrites prospering because God can raise them up and throw them down. And when they, of course, what did Luther, what did Jesus say? When you go to a feast, don't take the highest table. Last night we had preschool dinner, and um, the the table up there in the back, it, everybody was a Lutheran. It just filled all the tables in the back. But any table that was up higher here, it was not as well occupied. So you notice today that. The highest tables up here are only occupied by three people. Um, everybody else is humbly all the way in the back. All right, now, we had a, great, uh, a very nice meal last night. Okay, uh, 35, verse 1. We're going to jump all the way over to 35, but I want, I want to just, let's read 35 together because it is so incredibly beautiful. All right, I'll read the first verse, and you read second, and so on and so forth, all the way through. So I'll take odd, you take even. Ready? The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where the jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up upon, uh, on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. Just, isn't that just amazing how beautiful that text is? And especially set against the severe condemnations and judgments that were in the preceding uh, chapters. Now, if you look at chapter 36, this is that, it's a really beautiful story. Fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. 
Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And when the commander stopped at the aqueduct in the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. Now this is, uh, I'm just going to read this because I think it's really important stuff. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, I have come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord. Have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Just, um, just uh, Luther's going to see this as purely satanic. Purely satanic. All right. Back to 35, verse 1 in our handout. The wilderness will shall be glad. Very interesting text here. The church flourishes inwardly, not in power, in the wisdom of the flesh, in the gleam of splendid works, but it walks along in simple form, not in ostentatious holiness, and therefore appears to be quite forsaken and without any glitter. We keep saying this over and over again. You know, you say, what's a, what's a good work? Oh, a good work is establishing a charity so that, that people who have, um, have disabilities are able to be able to have, you know, just all this outward stuff. A good work is the fourth commandment. Your kids showing respect for those who are in authority, respecting their teachers. A good work is the fifth commandment. Trying to be able to help our neighbor who's in bodily need. Sixth commandment. Remaining pure in our thoughts and our actions. Seventh commandment. Defending our neighbor's possessions and rights. Eighth commandment. Watching out for people's reputation, not being gossipers. Well, that isn't that just something that just glitters in the world, right? Luther says... This is the kind of work that Christians do. We in the sermon today, we we're talking about wisdom in their children. Wisdom's children, when they do good works, are not 
ostentatious things that the world says, oh, there is really good. Have you ever, you talk to people and you say, oh, what, do you, what do your kids do? Well, my, um, my son got a PhD from Harvard and uh, he's now uh, dealing with the, uh, the complex molecules um, for the space program and will be an astronaut someday and he will probably be the first person to be able to land on Mars. Uh, what do your kids do? Well, my, my son's been pumping gas down at the gas station, you know. Do you really think that God is, is measuring people by those kinds of worldly things? Boy, wouldn't it just be great if, you, if a person does that and you said, yeah, I asked my son today to take out the garbage and he did it joyfully. <laughs> I'm so proud of that boy. <laughs> well, Luther says the church flourishes inwardly. And if you've ever been around somebody who just carries joy in their heart, what wonderful, wonderful. I mean, who couldn't have it in their heart yesterday? Oh, man, it was just like paradise. I just go outside. I couldn't couldn't stay inside. I had to go outside. Just what a gift! Shouldn't we live our lives like that every day? It says we're Christians inwardly. Yet there are internal flowers, Luther says, and delights there. But these are not visible. Namely, confidence, peace, life, and a cheerful conscience. Things that are not seen. The world considers this to be a common run of people. Meanwhile, looking up to the exalted things, to feasts and fasts and a unique prayer, to ceremonial rites, to cowls, tonsures, and similar things of this kind, while it disdains the church which looks so very insignificant. Luther now is already making the application to the fact that the Roman Catholic Church of his day, everything was absolutely glorious. These churches the cows, the processions, the, all this, this pretense of piety, the monks, Luther would say, what? And we have that, and then we have this group of people who are worshiping in this simple church. And if you look at the church that Luther designed, it was kind of an indication. We went to Torgau. How many of you were on that trip where we went to Torgau? How many of you want to go to heaven? Torgau is um, there, there's the first Luth, so-called designed Lutheran church. Luther himself actually participated in the design at Torgau, at the Elector's Castle. And you walk in, and it is beautiful, but it's very simple. The ostentation has kind of been taken out, and there is a beauty in that too, which I hope in some respects is reflected in our own sanctuary. We took our confirmation kids, you know, um, back and forth uh, to, in the middle of their uh, History of Salvation papers, uh, we did a little field trip, and we took them first over to Zionsville Fellowship over here, and then we took them over to the Greek Orthodox Church over here, which, of course, Advent is smack dabbed in between, so we started here. Um, when we went to the uh, Zionsville Fellowship, very nice people. They, they brought us in. They, we were met by this, by this man who had been there for quite some time. 
And uh, he said, when they designed their fellowship, their hall, their, their worship place, he said, we designed it so that a person over here could hear a person over there speaking, so that they would have kind of impromptu, kind of somebody stands up and prays and the person over here could hear. There was the so-called altar was a stage for with a band set and just a very simple cross in the, in the backdrop, but a meaning it was simple to the point that basically the people were the focus. We went to the Greek Orthodox Church, and man, you talk about elaborate and beautiful and paintings and gold and all that kind of stuff. And the pastor um, came out, had a beautiful explanation, theological, sacramental, focuses very much on God. Now, uh, you could say that that might be ostentatious and that this was a reaction to that because that's kind of what happened in the Reformation. That we had kind of the ostentation of Rome and then you had the, the uh, utter simplicity of the Reformed who threw out everything. But here we are as Lutherans in the middle trying to be able to make a statement about the glory of God but to not do it in a way which is ostentatious. Not to, in a sense, um, make God important by the way that we make him important. He's important because of his word. He's important because of what's preached. He's important because of the baptism. He's important because of the Lord's Supper. But what's more important than anything else is this word. word. And the church that does works, not ostentatious works, but humble works. Therefore, he says, the shape of the church must be discerned by the Spirit and not in the wisdom of the flesh. How many people today church shop? You hear it, don't you? What are you looking for when you church shop? You know, I went there and I I felt comfortable. Why? Well, I saw some people that I knew from the country club, or I knew some people from work there that were there, and they were really friendly. What are you looking for? The word? Well, the people are always, there's always a certain amount of, of truth, I guess you might say, to the need for us to be friendly and welcoming and such. But we're looking for the word, the sacrament. And where you find that, that's where you'll find the Holy Spirit. So Luther is, Luther is definitely a turn-it-upside-down kind of guy. Okay, 35.2. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Luther says, do not avenge yourself. Who is, to whom does vengeance belong? You remember this text from probably your confirmation days? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He is the God of vengeance. So Jerusalem, opposing the word, was stormed by the Romans. Then Rome perished, and so will, <coughs> so will our Papists. He doesn't mince words. So he comforts the church that is exceedingly hateful to the world and Satan, and besides does not shine with outward splendor. On the contrary, it is pressed um, one on a typo, 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 by a very heavy cross, 
It is also beset and harassed by a variety of internal evils such as weakness of faith and falling into sin. Beyond all these, Satan, the tempter, fights against it. So, like, for instance, um, we're trying to, as, kind of t as time goes on, we're, we'll throw out stuff about kind of the Reformation so that you get a, a piece of it and ho hopefully you can absorb some of that. There was a guy by the name of Philip of Hesse. And he was the... Uh, the Margrave, they called it. They had these various titles. He was a Margrave of Hesse. His, uh, his castle was there in a town called Marburg. And, um, and Philip of Hesse, I guess you might say, had a bad marriage. Um, what exactly the circumstances were, but he wrote to Luther, and he said, I got this problem. Um, there was another woman and when Luther wrote to him, uh, he told him that it wasn't going to be a good thing for him to divorce this woman and marry another. And Luther, I, I don't know if it was a, a statement in passing quite or, or what, but Luther said it would be far better, like the Old Testament, it would be far better to take another, take another woman as your wife than to desert this woman for this other woman. For which then, uh, basically, that put Philip of Hesse in the position where he could kind of say that Luther gave him permission to have two wives. And boy, did the Rome and the Romanists go after that because Philip of Hesse was a supporter of the Reformation. So, Anything that appears to be wrong that any individual did that was wrong, they immediately attacked. Now, this is not to say that the emperor wasn't taking mistresses left and right. This was not to say that the emperor did not actually have a child with the, uh, I guess you might say, the widow of his father in, Fl in Florence. This is uh, Charles V. Uh, when he was about 17 years old, his um, father, as he was dying, who had taken this young thing to be his wife, he's, as he's dying, take care of her son. He did. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, he had a child with her. Now, of course, this wouldn't be the legitimate heir and all that kind of stuff, and so on and so forth. But all this hypocrisy, they, they had clergy that were having uh, children with uh, all kinds of mistresses and whatever else there. But those Lutherans, that Philip of Hesse, boy, there was an extra woman. And by George, the whole Lutheran cause was now going to be brought down because that guy was a representative of Lutheranism. So you see, uh, Luther, what he's saying, our personal weakness, our personal weaknesses, you can better believe that Satan and all his hosts are going to look at our personal weaknesses and they're going to try and discredit the faith because of it. And Luther himself, you know, these words that Luther had for the Jews, so often, oh, you just, nowadays, you know, as it'll come up as, a, as the Reformation comes closer, that people are going to say, Luther was anti-Semitic. He, he said, burn their synagogues, little writing about that subject, burn their synagogues. Oh, modern day world. You see, if Luther said something bad about the Jews and he was anti-Semitic, he was actually the father of Nazism. 
So to be a Lutheran is to be a Nazi. Don't you agree? <laughs> well, you can see how it is that if we're going to judge the church by the people, you're going to find always weakness, but you have to look at the word that the people embrace. And our word is what? Are we perfect people? I hope we all agree we're not, especially the other people who are sitting with us. Yeah. Okay. Um, 35.4. And the tongue of the dumb sing for joy. Why don't you read what Luther says with me? It will glory in a strong confession, and the mercy of the Lord shown to us is proclaimed and boasted. For waters shall break forth, so this church, which was desert, should gush out in streams of the teaching of the gospel. Yeah, I, you know, this is um, the, the part of this, you know, the, the dung, t dumb will sing for joy. Those who are unable to speak now all of a sudden will speak. Boy, if there's anything that was uh, indicative of the Reformation was, is that the Reformation was the strength of confession. Um, uh, uh, Dave Kapeska sent me a link to the fact that Hey, Dave, thank you very much. Um, there is a Luther film that's out which is being shown around the country, and it's kind of a, I guess, AA, or Thrivent, it used to be AAL. Thrivent is going to fund a showing of this film anywhere that you ask for it to be shown. So in other words, if we went to the local movie theater and we said we would like to have um, this Luther film uh, shown here, that uh, Thrivent would actually pay to have it shown. Now, I looked on some of the trailers, and L Luther is kind of yelling. And uh, it kind of goes back, perhaps, to the days when, um, you know, the first Luther film, maybe, where they kind of personified Luther as this, I will not recant, I shall not recant. I don't know whether or not he yelled or not, but sometimes people kind of get the wrong idea when um, they see somebody yelling like that. I'm, I suppose I could teach Bible class that way, and you'd probably like it a little bit better. Is that right? But the strength of Luther, they say actually Luther had a fairly high voice, which probably would be true in those days too, because we've been eating too many steroids uh, and our voices are lower, had a higher voice, but I suspect that Luther was a person who spoke forthrightly, but, but you never hear of Luther yelling. So I'm hoping that as this film comes out or whether we have it shown or whatever it might be, that we would maybe um, take a look at that and try to be able to understand maybe Luther a little bit better. Maybe, it, maybe it's right. I don't know. But um, our, our Lutheran confession is a strong one. When you're disciplining your children, let me ask you this. Is it better when you get frustrated with them, is it better to speak louder and louder and louder or do you find that it's more effective to start speaking softer and softer and softer? Kind of like this. 
either you say, I am going to take you out and spank you if you continue to do that. Or how about this? I'm going to take you out <laughs> and spank you. <laughs> I kind of go for the latter one. Um, you drop your voice when you're, Luther, I will not recant. What did he say? <laughs> he said no. All right, well, okay. The grass shall become reeds and rushes, Luther, dragons and serpents like above all to be in dry places. The serpents and dragons are those who teach ungodly things and with their most pestilent teachings take possession of men's souls and consciences like Erasmus, Swingley, and Ecolampadius, whom Christ calls a brood of vipers. Woofta. Yeah, uh, Erasmus. Starts off, Luther liked him. Erasmus was actually a, uh, they, by the way, they used the word bastard back in those days in a more technical sense. But he was a bastard son of a priest. Absolute brilliant. He's the one who probably knew more about languages than anybody in his day. And at first there seemed to be kind of this unity between Luther and Erasmus because Erasmus wanted to also see reform within the Roman Catholic Church. But Erasmus couldn't get past one major obstacle. And that had to do with this subject. Came up in Luther's book called Bondage of the Will. Erasmus believed that man had a free will and that ultimately, ultimately, that his salvation rested upon man exercising his free will with God's grace. Now, a lot of times we'll hear people say, well, the reason why Joe Schmo gave up didn't, or didn't uh, come to the faith is because he has a free will. And they act as though Joe Schmo could just as easily say, I want to be a Christian, as he could say, I don't want to be a Christian. Kind of like you go down to local restaurant. Uh, I went to Bub's yesterday, and they said, would you like the pork chili, pork pole ch chili, or do you want the, what was it, regular chili, or just what do you call that? Beef chili. Okay. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I mean, which one do I want? I'll choose. I got the regular beef chili. Tastes good. It's a choice. You want to be a Christian, non-Christian, it's a matter of your cooperating with God if you have a free will. But Luther said, no, we are by nature blind, dead, and enemies of God. We cannot, we will not, I, we do not have the capacity. When we come to the faith, it's just exactly like that dead man in that story today, that dead boy, he's coming out on a beer, and Jesus walks up to him and says, I say unto you, arise. He calls his soul back to his body. Now, you say to these people like these Baptists who believe in free will, you say, did he make that choice? Did Jesus say, young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man was going, hmm, pulled pork chili or regular beef chili. Which of those two, I want to get, do I want to come back to life or not? 
He was dead. There wasn't anything he could do. And so when Luther was condemning this, because if you don't understand that, you can't understand grace. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the power of the word. If you don't understand that, you think that you have participated in your own salvation. It becomes a work. And there's nothing worse than a work that says, I had to do something to make it happen because as much as you can choose to make, to make something happen, you can also choose to make something not happen. And therefore, you can always fall out of God's grace too. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the 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 chief issue with Calvin, and I think we oftentimes poor old Calvin, we just really let him have it, but that's okay. Um, Calvin, and some will claim that Calvin wasn't Morris followers that took this up, but really, I I read his Institutes, so I Calvin taught this. Calvin um, begins all of his theology from what you might call the, the, um, this eternal election of God. That before time and eternity, God looked into time and he saw who we were. And God just arbitrarily, now at least as far as we can see, nothing in us. Calvin would be enough of a not free will person that he would not be able to say that he looked into time and eternity, saw who would accept him, as some people try to do this. But God, from all eternity, looked forward and he said, you're going to be saved and you're going to be saved. You're going to be go to hell. You're going to go to hell. You're going to be saved. You're going to go to hell. You're going to be saved. Sorry, it's marriage. We break you up here. Um, he got that God predestined some to salvation and some to damnation. And there are two things that he did by this. Number one, he completely destroyed what we might call the universal atonement of Christ, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. In fact, he could not handle this. Some other people can't either, but that's all right. We said, all Calvinists, leave the room right now. <laughs> the, um, yeah, it's just it's another reason for why people don't sit in the front. <laughs> um, this, I, this idea that, that, uh, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, Calvinists can't quite grasp that because if God is almighty, right, and the people will, will struggle with this, if God is almighty and he died for the sins of all humanity, then why is it that all humanity isn't saved? And so they said, basically, since all humanity isn't saved, Christ really didn't die for everybody. He only died for the elect, for those. And then at that, because of this being kind of God doing it straight out of heaven, that there is no means through which that salvation comes. What, what do you do with a sacrament that says, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins? If it says for the forgiveness of sins, it means it's for the... Yeah, and... So therefore, if you are one of the non-elect, you can't have your sins forgiven. So God really, according to Calvin, God really can't put in that sacrament something that is for you. It has to, you have to be an elect. Well, how do you know if you're one of the elect? And you say, well, Calvin said, perseverance in the faith. 
if you are a person who just keeps on going and you're kind of staying religious and you're doing good things out in the world and you're doing thing, good things in the, in the faith, then you can have a pretty decent idea that you're one of the elect. And this is where a lot of people say, this is where the Protestant work ethic came from. That the, when those Puritans came over by George, they were going to form the ideal society upon earth, that they were going to really be God's people, that they got rid of all those, those people back in England who weren't really sincere about their faith. They were going to come here and establish this one, and they were going to create a new paradise on earth, these pilgrims were, or that, uh, Puritans especially. And they came here, and they discovered that by George, they dragged all that sin right with them. And it wasn't the ideal society on earth. And they could not be this perfect culture. But America has always kind of had that notion. It came from the, from the Puritans. So Calvinistic theology, whereas we call it Arminian or Arminius, Arminian theology, is a theology that basically says that salvation depends upon us making a decision for Christ. Calvinist theology said, no, God makes the decision, but he makes the decision before time and eternity, and there really is no means through which that forgiveness comes. It's something that you get directly from God. And here we are as Lutherans, discerning the difference between law and gospel. This is why it was so important for Luther. Because in the law, we see, I, I tell my confirmation kids, I said, imagine that there are two windows here and we paint black on the back of one of these windows so that you in a very confused way you come out here and you see Christ and what Christ has done for you and you see the cross and you see its forgiveness of sins and God so loved the world and so on and then you go over to this window right here which has the painting on the back of it and you see yourself and you see how ugly you are and you see every zit that you've got on your face and you recognize that every all your sins the law is something which shows you your own sins and inadequacies and it tells you that if you're lost to the faith that it's because of your own doing. Not because God from eternity condemned you but because you rejected God and His grace. Then you go to this window and you see it's all God's doing and it's all what Christ has done for us and He is the one who spoke the word and you and I came alive He's the one who baptized us. He's the one who forgives us our sins in the Lord's Supper. That's all gospel. And by George, if you try to be able to make human reason make sense out of those two windows, you're going to find out that the scriptures are going to become a closed book for you and you're going to end up with either as an Arminian or a Calvinist. And most of what we see today in American culture religion is Arminian. There aren't many Calvinists left. Um, mainly because Calvinism is a very difficult religion to hold up because it's so incredibly rigorous and demanding. Uh, we, I asked my adults, for the form of faith class that we started on, on um, Thursday, last Thursday, I said to the group that was there, what do you perceive as, you know, what are some of the trends that you see taking place today? They said, theology, teaching is becoming thinner and thinner thinner. It's more and more watered down. It's just kind of like a generic kind of Jesus loves you kind of stuff. And then, by the way, this is how it is that you're going to be able to improve your life or make things better for you. It's all law. It's all law. But it's cheap law. But uh, what, what, uh, 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 some have called cheap grace. Now, this is why, this is why Luther is so crucial 
he understands the difference between the law and the gospel. And he doesn't mitigate, he doesn't change one in order to be able to make it fit with the other. Now there are some really, really good quotes in here that I want to get to, and I, I, I'm going to have to skip over. Um, let's see here. I, I like 35 verse 9, but the redeemed shall walk there. Let's read what Luther says. Did we say Calvinists could come back? <laughs> we have translated, those who have been set free again will walk there, that is, in Christian liberty, when the beasts and wolves are warded off by watchful shepherds. Christian liberty is outwardly subject to all men, but inwardly is Lord over all things. It can be condemned by no sin, Satan, law. Thus, thus it has its being in Christ alone. Meanwhile, the outer man be all, but let not the conscience give in one tittle. You will say, how much I am an unclean sinner. Sin, Satan, and law have nothing against me. All these neither condemn nor confound me. Thus, no righteousness, uprightness, etc., will deliver us. Christ alone is our deliverer. This is Christian liberty. All right. Now, this is a this is always the hardest thing. I don't think I don't think I've ever wrestled with a theological concept more than than Christian liberty. Because Luther says, as he points out. I am a servant of all men. God calls me into this world. He's the maker of the earth. Everything that I am, my body, my soul, my possessions, everything I have would be a good stewardship speech. It all belongs to God. Now go out and serve mankind. Serve them in your vocation, in your jobs, in your daily life. If you're good at what you do, you work hard at what you do, Make your business prosper. We're going to make this world into a far better place because all of you guys are good, solid, hardworking, honest, industrious people. That's what you're required to do. That's what God called you to do. God called you to be a Christian. And he called you to sacrifice your life and your heart and your soul for the gospel. He says, inwardly, no man is your master. Nobody is your master so that if anybody tries to bind your conscience beyond the word of God, you are free to be able to resist and your conscience cannot be condemned by anybody. Not even with your sinful nature. Remember what David said in that Psalm 52. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, that thou mayest be justified when thou speakest. It is God who justifies, not man. And no matter how bad you've been, no matter how many sins you've committed, Luther said it, and it's, it's hyperbole. He said, though I have whored a thousand times, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. Don't ever let anybody ever rule your conscience and do, seek to become your judge when God himself has declared you to be innocent and forgiven. And this is, this is weird. How am I supposed to be the servant of other people? Well, I serve them not by the compulsion, but I serve them out of freedom. 
I do so because of what Christ has done for me. So the good works that we do as Christians, these are not things that we do because we've got a whip on us. We do because of the fact that Christ has done this for us. He set us free. If you were a slave in Rome and you became a Christian, you were still a slave. But you did something differently. You served your master willingly with a free heart. And you would not let that become a statement of your worth in the kingdom of God. So this freedom and liberty and slavery, this mixture that we have is something that is so beautifully described by Luther. He was, again, another one who, by virtue of this law and gospel, properly understood this. All right, I'm going to throw you back here to the next page. We have about 10 minutes here. Um, let's take it one step um, well two, a couple of things 36-7 this, this guy is this, um, this uh, servant of the, of the king says is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed if you remember it was Hezekiah, as a righteous king, removed these false places of worship, these high places and, these, and these, uh, these altars. Hezekiah said, no, there's only one there's only one place where we worship, which really meant there's only one true God and there's only one true doctrine and gospel. And Luther says, he turns the most godly work of the king into the most criminal rage against King Hezekiah. Satan can advance a similar argument against us so that all the best things we have done, such as the demolition of the mass, the liberation of monks and nuns, etc., are slandered. By such means, Satan assails a struggling faith. So he, here, here comes the Lutheran Reformation and even Luther's own wife, right, named Katie, flees out of this convent and of course, all these monks who are bound by life and this, these rigors of asceticism and, and you know, eating small meals and sleeping in cold cells and whipping themselves, Luther says, these things don't earn God's favor. They're set free. And people from the outside, look at Luther. He's destroying all those monasteries. He's destroying the church. He's undermining it. Luther says, we do a good thing, and they're going to turn around and actually turn it into a so-called bad thing. That's going to happen always whenever you set people free. If a person is in a cult, the cult doesn't think that when that person comes to their senses and leaves the cult, that they're doing a good thing. So the cults exist in many different forms. We are always going to be hated when we set people free. Um... Then let's take 36.11. Then Eliakim said, Speak to your servants in Aramaic. And this is what Luther says. These people ask for quiet. And Satan shouts all the more. In other words, what he was doing is he was speaking in Hebrew so that all these guards that were on the walls of Jerusalem would be able to hear it. 
And he's going to make them all kinds of promises that if they surrender, that they, they will give them good lands and all kinds of things. And he's, they're, they're saying, please, I tell you what, just speak to us in Aramaic. We'll, we'll understand you, but they won't. But we just, please, you know, somebody comes to you and they, they say all kinds of nasty things about you in the presence of your children. And you say, do you think we could talk about this quietly, please? I mean, it's false. It's terrible, but you suppose that maybe there are weak consciences out there that might be defiled by this, but no. He says, Satan speaks all the more loudly. One must not debate, he said. Learn this. One must not debate with Satan. Keep this well in mind. The more we wrestle with him in this debate, the more we despair. Do not argue with Satan. Note this, for example, the more someone thinks about the evil lust that should be laid aside, the more he falls into those thoughts so that one follows closely upon the other and finally he will be in a frenzy. We oftentimes speak about uh, alcoholism as having this problem. See, what happens is when a person starts becoming an alcoholic, they usually are drinking in situations where they start stumbling or falling and embarrassing people. Next day, the guy wakes up and he just feels, you know, he's being told maybe even by somebody like his wife or whatever, you made a fool out of yourself. The guy's just going, oh, I feel shame. The more shame that he feels, the more he thinks about how it is that he shouldn't be drinking, the more he thinks about how he shouldn't be drinking, the more that he wants to start drinking. And the more that he finds himself caught in this vicious circle, the more he becomes actually weaker by it. Luther says that's the goal. He wants us to be able to actually go back to it and grab back to it and back to it with our thoughts and go round and round and round with our thoughts. And then he says the same thing happens in the case of the anger that is directed against someone that should be laid aside. Let go of those thoughts. When you pass, he uses the analogy, good, Luther's good at analogies. When you pass an entrance where a dog is sleeping, quickly pass the sleeping dog. Or if he is barking, do not irritate him. For the more you oppose him, the more frenzied he becomes. You must do likewise with the ambushes and deceptions of the devil. Let them pass by. You must completely despise such thoughts and arguments of Satan. Do not let the devil come near you. When his words are listened to here, the hearers soon despair and already ask for support. By this request, the speaker gave Satan an opening to vent his rage so that he spoke all the more and by his extremely boastful words led the people to despair. You can see uh, how absolutely... There are two kinds of theologians. There are theologians who deal with theology like it's math. It's abstract. It's something that you kind of talk about. Kind of like we might talk about the Federal Reserve and the choices that they make in regulating our monetary policy. Then there's a theology of the heart and the mind where we actually come to recognize and see the way that sin works in us. And when you have a Luther, you have somebody 
who legitimately struggled within himself. And not like he just rose to this height of being this erudite theologian. He's a guy who literally understood sin in the way that it works. We see this so often. The law condemns. What does Paul say? I had not known what it was to covet, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And it worked all kinds of covetousness within me. The very law that was given for the purpose of preserving my life is now the law that actually create, makes me worse. And you say, well, why do you suppose that we like to hear the law? <laughs> because if we don't hear the law and if we don't recognize that we've got the daggone cancer called sin, we're not going to seek the solution or desire or appreciate the solution that is given to us in Christ. So, uh, Luther understands what it means to be a sinner. And I think as Lutherans, we would do ourselves good justice by also recognizing the fact that we are all sinful people. But what a piece of joy to be able to know that God has no longer charged or held our sin against us, that he has no longer imputed or reckoned to us a judgment and a condemnation, that now in Christ we've been set free, and that we have a conscience that is subject to no one but to this gracious God alone. You guys got to live that life. Don't talk about it up here. Talk about it also in here. And then you need to apply it also to your children. Well, um, we're right on the dot here. I will end with the king, the 3621. The king's command was... Do not answer him. And Luther said, this is true. Because the more we hear him arguing, the more he reviles us. The more we answer him, the more he wins. Keep still. And together we will say, do not answer him. Okay, so there you go. Nothing to say to him. We have nothing to say to him. All right. Um, receive a benediction, if you will. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.